And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're going to camp out in, a, in about three different passages. But we'll spend most of our time here in Romans chapter 3. And for those of you that are just joining us, we are uh, laying a foundation, if you will. We've been looking at various doctrines in the Scripture and uh, looking at how our statement of faith summarizes various doctrines. And so this morning is, is no different. We're doing this over the course of this summer. And by God's grace, and I'll mention this again a little bit later in the sermon, by God's grace, uh, the plan is, is at, uh, at the end of the summer, toward the end of the summer, we're going to work through the philosophy that comes from our theology, right? Because if our theology, if our doctrine just stays at this theoretical level, which is what we don't want it to do. My hope and prayer is that each week we're leaving seeing how we should be applying this on the street level. But if we're not doing that, we're working at this all wrong. And so we're going to spend a few weeks um, even beyond uh, going through our doctrine uh, to look at how we as a corporate body uh, function. And then we're going to go through the book of First Timothy. But we are in the middle of um, this series, and this morning we're going to look at um, justification, adoption, and sanctification. Justification, adoption, and sanctification. And for your help, uh, I'm gonna, I'll read the definitions as we come uh, to each one of those, but I've included the definition uh, just in the sermon note portion uh, in your worship guide so you don't have to stress about uh, writing any of that down. But the first thing I want us to look at this morning is justification. And we see Romans chapter 3. I'm just going to read that, then I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin to just work through uh, these theological terms, and we will see their relevance for us. By God's grace, we will apply them to our lives, be changed by them, and leave strengthened and encouraged in the gospel. But Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21, going to verse 26, the Apostle Paul, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned these words to the Roman church, and God's kept these words pure so that we have them here and now. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time that we have together. Lord, thank you for reminding us through song that it's you and you alone that hold us fast, God, that, um, Lord, we will inherit all that Christ has earned, God. It's, it's uh, not anything that we've done solely what you have done as we will see and be reminded of this morning. And uh, we love you and praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in your worship guide, the definition that we have for the theological term justification is this. Justification is an act of God's free grace 
wherein he pardons all of our sins, or not some of our sins, not just the sins we committed yesterday, the sins that we committed on the way here this morning, or the sins that we're going to commit in the future. He's, he's pardoned all of those sins, past, present, and future, and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So from God's perspective, which is the perspective that matters, this holy, unchanging, eternal God looks at those in Christ and accepts us as righteous. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? Right? If we're a people that fear God, if we're a people that, uh, that, that have a high view of God, that should comfort us that the God of all creation, the God who created you and the God who created me, if we are in Christ, his perspective, his perspective of us is that of us being righteous. We are righteous in his sight. Martin Luther said justification by faith is the article of a standing or a falling church. Justification is the article of a standing or a falling church. This is the confession of the early church. This is the central doctrine, if you will, that was recovered or reasserted at the time of the Reformation. We're justified by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And, and here in our passage in Romans, we see who at the center of our justification. Who is it that we see at the center of our justification? We see God. God's at the center of our justification. God's at the center of the gospel, right? right oftentimes, I think, just by default, we think of ourselves at the center of this, this grand cosmic plan of salvation, this grand cosmic plan of redemption. And while we are the beneficiaries of, of the, this beautiful work, we're not the central players in the story. We're not. Look with me at verses 24 to 26 in our text here in Romans because we're going to see the how of justification that supports our definition, but we're also, as we continue to go along, we're going to see the centrality of God in our justification, in our adoption, and in our sanctification. At first, we see in verse 24, we're justified by God's grace as a gift. We're justified by God's grace as a gift, right? and are justified by his, by God's grace. Our God is, he's the giver of good gifts. And I don't mean that in a prosperity gospel sort of way, but what I do mean is that God has lavishly blessed us in the finished work of Jesus. Right? He's not chintzy. He's not withholding. He's not stingy. He's a good, gracious, gen generous God, and his grace is a gift. Right? What every single one of us deserve, all of us, what all of us in this room deserves, what everybody in this world that's been born since the fall of man deserves is the unrelenting wrath of God. But instead, God accepts us. He pardons us as righteous because of Christ Jesus. Our justification is of sheer grace. It's of sheer grace. It's his giving to us what we don't deserve. 
right? His giving to us of what we don't deserve. In fact, it's his giving to us that which we didn't even ask for in our sinful, helpless, dead in our trespasses sort of state. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and, 8 and 9, 4, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And then get this, this is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We see that both grace is a gift we see that faith is a gift. Paul says that both of these are not your own doing. In fact, according to Ephesians 2 and according to verse 22 of Romans chapter 3, the text we're looking at, the gift of faith is the mechanism, if you will, by which the righteousness of, of God is made manifest in Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't something that we can conjure up, if you will, in and of ourselves. We, we don't look within ourselves to find faith. We don't look within ourselves to find grace. They're both gifts from God. We don't have anything in ourselves that we can brag about. What we must brag on is who God is for us in Christ Jesus. When we boast, according to 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 31, when we boast, our boast is in who? in the Lord. Our boast is in the Lord. So first, we're justified by God's grace as a gift, as a gift. Secondly, we're justified, according to the second part of verse 24 going on into verse 25, we're justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Redemption, which means to be ransomed or to be emancipated, is given to us in Christ Jesus alone. We're redeemed from the slavery of sin and, and from the wage that our sin has earned us, which is death. Right? Galatians says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law being that we see that uh, what our sin deserves is death. Christ has redeemed us from that, and he redeemed us from that by becoming a curse for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. And it's God's doing, according to Romans 3, it's God's doing that put Christ forward for this. It was in his cosmic plan before the foundation of the world. I read this passage. It's a benediction, really, that we'll end up doing as a congregation. But I read this just this morning in my devotional, Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. I don't have it in your notes or up on the screen, but the benediction is this. Now to him, right, to God, to our triune God, who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Right, this revelation of the gospel is the mystery that was kept secret since the world began. And from Paul's reflection of that, he can't help but to give 
God alone glory. He says, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ. And it's God that put forward Christ, a, a plan before the world began and revealed to us in the New Testament to be the propitiation. And what that word means is it's a, a, a sin offering in which the holy, righteous wrath of God towards sin would be satisfied. That's what that word propitiation means. In the Old Testament, the the blood of a goat or a bull was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat inside of the veil. We see that in in Leviticus chapter 6. And this was done to satisfy the wrath of God, which, by the way, in the Old Testament, the word wrath is mentioned almost 600 times. But this blood... Right? This temporal sacrifice was to redirect God's wrath onto the, 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 the sacrifice, thereby withholding it from his people. Right? Withholding his wrath from his people by redirecting his wrath onto this sacrifice. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus here. And what is, what is that? That's mercy. That's mercy, right? That's the very definition of mercy. God withholding what it is that we deserve, just like grace is the giving of what we don't deserve. Or mercy is the withholding of what we do deserve, right? Grace is the giving of what we don't deserve. But for Christ to be the propitiation for our sins, thereby justifying us before God, it means that his blood, that Christ's blood is beyond the veil, and is permanently before the mercy seat of God, right? The blood of Christ Jesus is beyond the veil in the holy of holies. It's forever before the mercy seat of God, and because of that, we're justified, right? This is what it means for Christ to be the propitiation for all time for our sins, And it's because it's God's grace that has put forward Christ as the propitiation for our sins that we see that it's God alone who provides the means of satisfying his righteous wrath. I love the story when we read um, the, the historical account of Abraham and Isaac, right? When the Lord's telling Abraham to sacrifice his son that he's promised him and, um, and for those of you that know the story, right, the Lord stops Abraham from sacrificing his son, right? We see this shadow of a, a, a father willing to sacrifice his son, and, and God in that, it, it preaches the gospel to Abraham, but the Lord provides the sacrifice that is to be made, right? The, the animal, right? The Lord provides for himself. Our holy God meets the demands of his justice. And he did that by providing Christ alone. Our our triune God is at the center of our justification. 1689 in chapter 11, the first paragraph says that justification is the accounting and accepting persons as righteous, not for anything in them, wrought in them, or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. One author of an... uh, in the early church, uh, actually in the, the, the late 2nd century, 
upon just meditating on the doctrine of salvation, right? And anytime we're working through doctrine, it should lead to doxology, should lead to greater devotion to the Lord, right? If this isn't warming our hearts for Christ, then there's some disconnect. There's something that's, that's, go, that's preventing us from uh, just turning this around in praise and in worship. But uh, an early church writer in the late second century after thinking through the doctrine of justification, broke out in praise and wrote this, O sweet exchange, O unfathomable work of God, O blessings beyond all expectation, the sinfulness of man is hidden in the righteous one, while the righteousness of the one justifies the many that are sinners. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? Christ becomes the propitiation for our sins, and in doing so, he not only takes our sins, he not only redeems us from the curse of the law, he not only satisfies the just wrath of God and secures for us mercy, but in this we are declared as righteous. As we saw last week, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. The earthly ministry of Christ, which led to our justification, isn't something that got us out of the red and zeroed us out. Right? Christ didn't come in his earthly ministry and die and resurrect and give us a fighting chance at being saved. Right? Jesus actually and definitively accomplished our salvation. There's no chance that an ounce of Christ's blood would be wasted. Not an ounce of his blood would be wasted. We're redeemed through his blood, and we're declared as righteous. And this is something that we truly possess because we're united with Jesus. Our baptism, when we do baptism, our own personal baptisms symbolize this very union. The Lord's Supper that we take each Lord's Day preaches this to us. We receive all that Christ earned, and our receiving of it is built on him alone, who's our cornerstone, Matthew twenty-one forty-two, And why did God do this? Why did God do this? Why did God graciously justify us through the blood of Christ Jesus? Paul answers this question in the second part of verse 25 to, on into verse 26. To show God's righteousness... Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, which was God's perfect time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And in other words, for his own glory. For his own glory. God is at the center of our justification. God alone is righteous and he demonstrates his righteousness to us in our justification. God alone is just and he demonstrates his justice to us in the rightly timed sacrifice of Christ Jesus. God alone is the justifier of the one that he gives faith to and therefore we won't share his glory or uh, he, he won't give credit to any other creature. Our good gracious, merciful God is just, and he's the justifier of those that are in Christ Jesus. Justification. Secondly, adoption. On adoption. Flip over a few chapters to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Look with me down to verse 12. 
We'll go to verse 12 to verse 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The definition of adoption is also an act. And you'll notice this is, is um, what all three of these defini- definitions have in common in your notes is they're all an act of God's free grace. Right? They're all an act of God's free grace. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right. That's a strong word. This is your right. You have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. If you're in Christ, you have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Very strong language. And 1689 says in chapter 12, all those that are justified, right, which we just looked at, all those that are justified, God conferred in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy, I love that word too, enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him, as by Father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Right, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, right, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Or verse 16, the Spirit of Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Or verse 17, if children than heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. These are some, or they should be, these are some of the most emotionally stirring words in all of Scripture for a Christian. There's security here. There's safety here. Nobody wants their family to flounder. Right? Nobody, nobody wants that to happen. And in these few verses, we see a sense of, 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 of God glorifying, thriving. The family of God is thriving. Right? When we look around and, and sometimes all we, it seems that we see or hear about is conflict and controversy, we need to be reminded that God's family is thriving. We're doing just fine. We're doing just fine. We're sons. We are daughters. We're children. We are 
errors in the 1689, harmonizing various passages of Scripture for us, including this Romans 8 passage, says that we're pitied, we're protected, we're provided for, we're corrected, yet we're never cast off. We're sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of an everlasting salvation. How comforting should the doctrine of adoption be for us that are in Christ Jesus? This is very, very comforting. And this is something that can't be taken away from us, right? God's not going to take us back to the orphanage, right? I've given you this illustration before, but... Man, imagine that, that God in Christ Jesus, just to give you a picture, has, has driven to this orphanage in Jesus Christ, and he's adopted us. We're a part of his family. In this time that we now live in, as, we're, as the world is waking up to the reality of the lordship of Jesus Christ, this time in which we live in is this time of, of forgetfulness, right? We're in the car, and we're on the way home, but we're not officially home yet. Right, we still may have our orphan clothes on and we still may smell like the orphanage. And during the car ride home, we may begin to believe that we are in fact still orphans, but we're not orphans. We've been adopted into the family of God. Right, th think of how the mission work of adoption functions in our society. Right, to adopt an orphan comes at a a great sacrifice for a family. There are relational costs. There are financial costs. It takes the stepping out of a family's comfort zone. It takes a, a step out of their own privacy. And it's the initiating and sustaining work of a family with the vision for adoption that makes adoption possible. And as it happens, this once orphan, again, is... is is no longer an orphan. She takes on the family name. She becomes a possessor of all that's in the household, not because she earned it, not because she's entitled to it, but because of the sheer grace of a mom and dad with a red-hot love for their newly adopted daughter. Now, while the illustration of adoption by moms and dads doesn't translate entirely to God's adoption to us, the mission work of adoption in the here and now does preach to us the beauty and the heart of a God who loves to make orphans sons and daughters. Right? And, and all the work of our spiritual adoption was one-sided. That's how we know it's going to last. It wasn't based on us with our fleeting passions that we often pursue and our fickle commitments that we often make. It was a one-sided commitment by an unchanging God who condescended to us in the person of Christ Jesus who brought us into his fold. God alone did this work. God alone is the one that put us in the position to call him Abba, Father. One theologian says it like this, the title of son it belongs to Christ, but it's placed on us through grace because God chose to adopt us for the sake of his son. All that Christ is and all that Christ earned is ours. It's ours. Not because we have this right to inheritance within us, in and of ourselves, but because God has graciously conferred all that Christ has earned to us. So we've been justified, we've been adopted, we have new names, 
We've been taken out of the domain of darkness and we've been put into the kingdom of light. We were once called sinners and though sin still remains and is day by day by the Holy Spirit of God being put to death, we're now called saints and we're eternally called saints. To be a part of the kingdom of God is to be a saint, a saint not because of any righteousness of our own, but a saint because of the righteousness of Christ. We've been everlastingly adopted. Third, on sanctification. Sanctification. Flip over to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. Many of you will know this is the high priestly prayer of Christ Jesus. John 17 Verse 17 to 19, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The definition of sanctification, again, it's in your notes. It's the work of God's free grace. whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness as we walk through this life by God's Holy Spirit. I love this uh, definition of it. This is uh, John Owen. Sanctification is the universal renovation of our natures by the Holy Spirit into the image of God through Jesus Christ. I love the Trinitarian nature of that definition. Sanctification is the universal renovation of our natures by the Holy Spirit into the image of God through Jesus Christ. The the reason I picked this passage, John chapter 17, for us to examine sanctification, because we could have gone all over the place to examine any of these theological terms, these biblical terms, Terms, But the reason I picked this is because it is in the context of Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Which means that not only was Christ in his high priestly prayer praying for the disciples of the first century, but he was also praying for Christians in every age. Right, believer, right, for those of us that are in Christ Jesus this morning, this is the prayer of Christ for you. Right, this is the prayer of Christ for me, and, and a part of his prayer is that we would be sanctified. It's not just a prayer that we would be prevented from being dominated by evil. Again, God's family thrives. God's family thrives. It's not that we're just, just tucked away from evil, but that we would be conformed to that which is good. Right? That we would be conformed to that which is true. That we would be conformed to that which is righteous and that which is beautiful and that in our conforming of that that we would also become lovers of it we would also become lovers of it right christ prays that we would be consecrated that we would be purified that we would be separated from unrighteousness through our ever-increasing love of righteousness which we do through our ever-increasing love of christ jesus who alone is righteous And in this prayer, we see that this is to be done according to God's truth. According to God's truth. In this process of sanctification, the Lord doesn't leave us guessing 
as to how we're to be sanctified. He doesn't leave us guessing as to what we're to be uh, uh, conformed to. Right? We don't have to make it up. We're sanctified by God's truth. And how do we know God's truth? Jesus answers that. He says in his prayer that truth is God's word. Verse 17, truth is God's word. And for many of us, it's not that we don't know that, right? It's not that we don't know that. It's not that I'm communicating something that's new to you necessarily. It's not that we don't know where to find God's truth. It's just that, frankly, many of us may not be very interested in it. Or we're scared to let go of any preconceived notions or commitments that we know the word undermines. Or we're just too in love with our sin and know that the scriptures say that repentance is required. And that's exactly why Christ prays for you. That's exactly why Christ prays for me, that you may be sanctified through your ever-increasing love of knowing and conforming to God's unchanging, righteous truth. And, And there is freedom in that. There is happiness in that, right? Christians should be the happiest people on the planet, right? Not defined by sulkiness or bitterness or pouting, right? We shouldn't be defined by people that are fretting because we are behaving as if God doesn't have this world in control. We have God's truth that's sanctifying us, that's renewing our minds day by day, that tells us the complete opposite. And some of you this morning are in inner turmoil. Right? You're, you're all tied up in knots. Being conformed to God's truth will be the undoing of that for you. Right? Some of you are entangled by sin. Being conformed to God's truth frees you from that because it preaches to you the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ. Being changed by God's truth is important. It's important. That's one of the reasons it's important for us to to do a series like this. We need to know the doctrines the Scriptures speak to and support. We're exploring the Scriptures, many of which we often neglect. And in exploring and working through all of this, we're laying a theological foundation for our church. And the strength of a church is the strength of her doctrine. This isn't, again, a theoretical foundation. We're to conform to the Word. We're to conform to... To the word. As Christians, we should want to know God's truth so that we can be conformed to God's truth. And that takes work. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes humility. Right? It takes adversity. It takes dying to ourselves. It takes staying put long enough to be sanctified in the community of faith that the Lord has put you in. If you're a Christian, and this is Christ's prayer for you, It's God's will that you be sanctified by the Word of God. It's His will that you be sanctified according to the whole counsel of His spoken Word that's been written and kept pure in all ages. It's through God's Word that the Holy Spirit of God comforts you. It's through God's Word in the Holy Spirit of God that convicts you or that exalts Christ to you or that rebukes you or that assures you of your salvation when you feel like you've got nothing left. God's truth 
by God's Spirit is the way in which we as a community of faith grow in the gospel. It's the way in which we grow in Christ's likeness, which is what we see in Christ's prayer. He says, verse 18 and 19, You sent me, God praying this to the Father, You sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Christ didn't grow in holiness, we know that. He, in verse 19, he, he saying that he sets himself apart as the spotless sacrifice. But we're to grow in sanctification in light of Christ's consecrating work. And we're to be imitators of Christ. We're to be conformed into the image of Christ as we put to death the deeds of the flesh, Romans eight thirteen, and as we walk as a new man according to God's word. Just in summary, the 1689 says this about sanctification. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified really and personally through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts of it are more and more weakened and mortified, and they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And we all look forward to that day where God in Christ definitively puts an end to all of that stuff. Right? And we can worship our God for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth without any hindrances of sin, without any hindrances of a broken body. I look forward to that day. A few takeaways for us, just in light of what we've worked through. Number one, God's at the center of our justification. And had I not sent this to the printer on Wednesday, I would have added adoption and sanctification. But God is at the center of our justification, adoption, and sanctification. Therefore, our public and private worship and our evangelistic witness should be God-centered and not man-centered. Secondly, our spiritual adoption should increase our assurance of faith. We will never be cast out by the Lord, John 6, 37. Our inheritance is certain, Ephesians 1.14. We have the Holy Spirit that seals us. He's the guarantor of our possession until the day we we take it. Three, persisting in sin decreases our assurance of faith. Therefore, we're to remember Christ's prayer for our sanctification and grow in putting our sin to death and in loving righteousness. And we do this according to God's word. Practically speaking, this means we need to be committed to the public worship of God and and cultivate a rich, Scripture-driven devotional life. As we do this, we do so dependent on the Holy Spirit of God for real change in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for time in your word. Lord, I thank you for this church body, God. I thank you... um, for their desire to grow in the word, Lord, to grow in the gospel, Lord. Thank you 
uh, for all that you allow us to do, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to gather and to worship you in spirit and in truth, God. And we trust and pray that your Holy Spirit would use it in our lives according to your will and according to your purpose. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.